Your story is waiting for you today. Your story has something new to say. But your story will only come out to play when you're alone. Alone. Alone in a room with invisible people. The following episode may contain swearing. Alone in a Room with Invisible People is brought to you by hollyswritingclasses.com. If you like what we do here at Alone in a Room with Invisible People and you would like to sponsor the podcast, you can go to coffee.com, that is K-O hyphen F-I dot com slash alone. Or visit us at alonewithinvisiblepeople.com and on the top right hand corner, you'll find a drop down menu. Thank you so much. Hey guys, it's Rebecca from Alone in a Room with Invisible People. We are taking a small break from my birthday, but we wanted to still make sure that you had some kind of content. So as we've mentioned before, we have Holly's old podcasts from 2006. We know that you guys have been asking for a way to download them and re-listen to them. Some of you guys have never even heard them before. So this episode is going to consist of the first two podcast episodes that she put out. Some of them in the future, we might have uh, interviews with her and other people. I'm not sure. I know that we are probably going to save another episode or two for her birthday in October. So I hope you guys enjoy these two podcasts from Holly. Welcome to Holly Lyle on Writing. I'm Holly Lyle, your host. Let me introduce myself briefly. I've written more than 30 books. 28 of them are novels published under my own name. Two are writing books. And one is a work for hire that was published under another name. I write full-time for a living. I love my work and I really enjoy writing about it and talking about it. And that's what this show is going to be about. My objective is to help you reach your writing goals. Uh, I want to give you things that I have learned that helped me get published, um, little tips on how to make your work more interesting, how to make your characters deeper, how to improve your plots, how to excite an editor about the project that you're proposing. And since I have you here, let's do a writing tip. It's common knowledge among professional writers that starting your book with a weather opening is a bad idea. However, it's also really tempting to start with a line like, it was a dark and stormy night. That was Edward Bulwer-Lytton. Um, we, we, we tend to think that leather, weather is cool. It sets a dramatic stage. It looks good in the movies. You start with a big storm or something. The problem with weather is that unless it is affecting somebody, nobody really cares. So, if you want to use weather in your opening, you need to make the weather affecting the people and you need to show it from the very first line. I will give you an example from my own work. This is uh, from God's Old and Dark, book three of the World Gate series, and it's starting with chapter one, Siren, Wisconsin. Hire Thorson, pounding roofing nails into shingles on the hottest August afternoon Wisconsin had seen in 10 years suddenly smelled spring in the air. He slid his hammer into his tool belt, closed his eyes, and inhaled deeply. The scent that he caught this time wasn't spring, but it had the same feel to it, newness and life and goodness, but fragile, fragile. Hmm, he said, and by damn, he yelled to his fellow roofer, hey, Lars, I'm on a break. 
Lars, sweating and shirtless and looking like he'd been run through a ringer, just grunted. Hire took the time to go down the ladder, though it would have been easier just to jump. He kept breathing deeply, making sure all the time that this wasn't just his imagination, just wishful thinking, because jobs were hard to come by, and he didn't want to do anything stupid. The smell was still in his nose when he went to the foreman, who gave him a little smile when he walked up and said, You could have the decency to pretend to be as exhausted as the rest of us. Doesn't the heat bother you? Hires shrugged. Extremes of weather had never bothered him. Just lucky, he said. And then one more quick breath. Still there. I hate to do this to you in the middle of a job, Kali, but I've got some place I need to be. Kali shrugged. Don't worry about it. You never miss a day. You never ask for time off. You need some place this a- to go someplace this afternoon. Go ahead. I didn't mean this afternoon. I mean I have to leave now. I quit. Collie, whose name was something so dreadful that Hire had never heard him or anyone else use it, held his hands out wide and stared at the development springing out of dirt. We got this house and 15 more just like it. You know you got a job until this is done. And for anything else I get when this project is finished, you're my best guy. You quit, I'm going to have to hire three other people to replace you. You can't just walk out on me like this, man. In the middle of the day, in the middle of a roof. Jesus, what? Your nail box is still up there and half a flat of shingles. Told you when I signed up I'd stay on as long as I could. Well, this is as long as I could. Holly looked at him, exasperated. You said that six years ago. I figured by now you'd made up your mind. Doesn't have anything to do with me, Hire said. I like you. Liked working with you. You treated me right, and the rest of your men, too, and I appreciate it. I just got my call. Have to go now. Right now. He turned and left. Collie was yelling after him, but Hire walked across the site, climbed into his white pickup truck, and pulled out. He had a cell phone in the truck. Soon as he was out on the street, he picked up the phone and hit one on the quick dial. He heard two rings. Then a voice one degree too sexy for professional use said, First National Savings and Loan, Nancy Soderlund speaking. How may I help you? Hire rolled his window down. He took another deep breath. Yep, it was still there. Have to go, Nancy, he said. There was a moment's silence in which Hire had time to wish he'd stuck to his guns about keeping his relationships uncomplicated. Go? Where? I'm not sure. I just have to go. Another silence. Well, for, for how long? Make it clean, he told himself. Make it quick. This is what I told you about when we moved in together, Nancy, that one day I was going to have to leave. A very long, long silence followed this announcement while she tried to figure out what he was talking about. Then, in the silence, she screamed into his ear, That was four years ago! And that was from God's Old and Dark, Book 3 of the World Gate series. In it, you see that I didn't use big dramatic weather. I just used a very small change. A scent of spring, or something that was like spring, in the middle of a very hot summer day. But from that tiny change, my character had his entire life changed and changed the lives of the people around him. 
He quit his job. He left his girlfriend. He walked away from his entire life up to that point for the scent of something in the air. If you're going to use weather, make sure that the weather you use is critical to the character, not just to the dramatic opening or to pre painting a pretty picture as you start in. And that's it for this first zero episode of Holly Lyle on Writing. Some of the music for this show was provided by Podshow, Podshow, Podsafe Music Network. Check it out at music.podshow.com. That's music.podshow, P-O-D-S-H-O-W.com. And if you like this podcast, you'll like the books. Find my books and much more at hollylyle.com. That is H-O-L-L-Y-L-I-S-L-E.com. Thank you very much for listening. And remember this, believe, persist, and never give up on your dreams. You can do this, and it's worth it. Welcome to Holly Lyle on Writing. I'm Holly Lyle, and we're here to talk about writing. I've had a lot of people ask me about the odds of getting published, about how hard it is, about what your chances are, and I wrote an essay called Beating the Publishing Odds. Uh, It's in my weblog. You can find it there, but I'm going to read it for you here now. Beating the Publishing Odds. What are the odds of getting a book professionally published nowadays? I've read everywhere from 1 in 5,000 to 1 in 12,000 to 1 in 100,000. They're high. Not quite win the lottery odds, but high. You think you're lucky enough to beat them? I do. Consider this. Since the dawn of time, every single one of your ancestors survived droughts, plagues, fires, earthquakes, meteors, ice ages, floods, wars, genocide, homicide, witch burnings, inquisitions, jihads, and in the last 30 years, Roe versus Wade, to bring forth at least one offspring that was fit to reproduce. 100%. of your ancestors were winners playing at a brutal global table with odds considerably higher than it takes to win the lottery jackpot, just to be breathing in the first place. And they had you. The two cells that got together to make you are full of winning genes. Spectacular, luckier than shit, magnificent genes that came together at odds of anywhere between 40 million and 100 million to one. Any of those other sperm would not have resulted in you, nor any of those eggs. The baby that resulted from that conception then survived a risky nine months or thereabouts just to be born, and however many years following that moment, to arrive here. Now, the odds of your being you and being alive to hear these words at this moment are so astronomical, you might as well be counting atoms on the planet to figure them. And yet, here you are. You beat all the odds to get here. You want to write? You want to sell what you write? And you're getting a certain amount of crap from people telling you that you can't do it, that the odds are too high, that it's too hard. Give me a break. You're here, damn it. Breathing, kicking, with a dream and a vision and a hunger. Having passed through millennia of dangers and suffering and struggle just to get here. If you want to beat puny publishing odds, you will find a way. Believe. For today's writing tip, I'm going to discuss where to start your story. I read a lot of beginner manuscripts, and a lot of them begin with a prologue. A thousand years ago, this started. A hundred years ago, it turned into this. Ten years ago, it became this. 
And then they start in with, it was a dark and stormy night, and move to what's happening today, what the heroine is doing, who her family is, who her friends are, and that is a guaranteed way to get rejected right out of the gate. You need to start your story with a bang. You need to start in the middle of action. And this is not the easiest thing in the world to do because the temptation is to explain everything first so people understand what's happening. It's a bad impulse. I'm going to give you the opening couple of paragraphs from the story that I wrote that started, I think, best of all of them. This excerpt is from Hunting the Corrigan's Blood, one of my personal favorites of all the books I've written. Chapter 1. The corpse's left eye squinted at me from mere centimeters away. Decomposition lent her face an increasingly inscrutable expression. The first time I'd regained consciousness, when I found myself tied to her, she looked like she had died in terror. After a while, she started leering at me, as if she had reached the place where I was going and took perverse pleasure from the thought that I would join her there soon. Now, having had her moment of amusement at my expense, she meditated. Beneath thousands of dainty auburn braids, her face hung slack, bloated and discolored, the skin loosening. Threads of drool hung spiderwebbish from her gaping mouth. Her eyes, dry and sunken, and filmed over beneath swollen lids, still stared directly at me. For a while, when I'd been hallucinating, the corpse had talked to me. She'd whispered that they would come back and throw me out an airlock, into the hard vacuum of deep space, that my vile mother was stalking me that I could never run hard enough or far enough to find freedom, that death would be my only freedom. But my mind was clear now. No hallucinations, no talking corpses. And that was from Honey the Corrigan's Blood. I figure any time you can start a book with a woman chained to another woman in a locker in a spaceport for three days you don't really owe it to the reader to tell them how she got there. You can go back later and do that, but what you have given them is something that takes them into the story and makes them want to find out, first off, who she is, second, what she did, and third, how is she going to get out of this mess that she's found herself in? When you are writing a beginning, don't start at the beginning. Start in the middle of action. Start with the most exciting part of the story that you can think of. And then you can go back and give a little bit of explanation. But even then, we don't need to know everything. You need to know everything because you're the writer. You need to know who your people are, who their friends are, who their parents were, all of these different loads of background. But you don't have to share that with us. You just dribble it out in little tiny bits and pieces and tell us almost as much as we need to know, but never as much as we need to know. Because if we know as much as we need to know, we don't need to keep reading. We found out everything. Start in the middle. My world-building tip for today involves creating accents for your characters. I have a little story. Um, back when Steve Sterling and I were writing The Rose Sea together, I developed a character named Yowley. She wasn't human. She had a slightly elongated face and fangs. And every time I tried to write her, she came out sounding like Vlad the Impaler, 
or a really bad version of, of Bela Lugosi's uh, Dracula. And that's my cat, who is bugging the ever-living daylights out of me today. Anyway, back to Yali. I was trying to find a way to, to make her sound not like Dracula, and I came up with the idea of sticking a couple of pencils in my mouth um, to act as fangs so that I could, I could understand the sounds that she would make. I'm going to do a little demo here for you. Okay, this is, this is me hearing her before I actually tried this. She, she spoke like blood, the impaler. All right, this was what happened to her voice when I found out what she, the sound she could really make when she, she had fangs. Okay, pencils in the mouth. Hi there. I cannot speak with the same words and sounds that everyone else can speak with because I have these huge fangs sticking out of my mouth. Okay? The, if you do this, then you start going through the alphabet. You go A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H. If you go all the way through the alphabet like that, you can discover which sounds work, which sounds won't work, and you can start developing an accent for your character that will actually fit the character and that will not be just another cliched knockoff of something you heard in a movie. It's goofy. You're going to look like a complete idiot. You're going to sound like a complete idiot while you're doing it. But the end result will be that you will get something much more real and much more valuable in your story than, than just another character with fangs talking like Vlad. I received some great questions from listeners, and I'm going to answer a couple of them now. The first one is from Michael, and it says, Hi, I read in one of your essays that you find meditation useful for getting you started. I'd like to know what you think about listening to music as a source of inspiration and background for working itself. I sometimes find it helpful to get me in the right mood. I'm writing a mystery horror story, and I play an appropriate piece to start thinking dark. Do you think that playing ambient music helps or distract? Well, I have an entire topic in my weblog devoted to my soundtracks, the things that I listen to while I'm writing. But with that said, I rarely listen to music while I'm writing. There are times when, for a particular project, I find it tremendously useful. There are times when it's just distracting, and the music really matters, too. I find it very difficult to listen to anything with clear words, which means that I can listen to rock and roll, I can listen to Celtic music, I can listen to instrumentals, but anything that is really clear, um, where you can make out all the words that the people are singing, just throws me completely off. So basically the answer to that is, it depends on the project, it depends on the writer, it depends on the music. Um, but sometimes it's great, I love it. Okay, then, uh, from Paul, I have a, a question on productivity. Paul says, Some authors have a problem generating ideas. I'm lucky enough not to be one of them. I have more ideas than I can use, and that's actually part of my problem. The most I've ever gotten into a novel was 25,000 words, and that was for a National Novel Writing Month endeavor that wasn't worth much the way I wrote it. Other than that, I've written only a few short stories. My ambition is, of course, to write novels. A short story can entertain for an hour, but a novel can entertain for days. And that's what I'd like to give people, entertainment for a long while. 
The thing is, I find my ideas constantly shoving each other for attention. One moment I see this character doing that, the next I've got some big idea that would just be perfect with this story, etc., etc. And even when I commit myself to a single tale, I find I'm, I'm inept at writing substantial lengths, probably because I've not had any practical experience with it. Any advice you could give would be much appreciated. Paul, <laughs> this is part of the gig, and it happens with every writer. You start out, and ideas are everywhere. They bounce in your mind. They distract you from what you're doing. Um, for me, I have a couple of different ways that I deal with it. The first is by writing down the idea and on just a separate scrap of paper and a notebook and moving back to what I was doing before. The second is, and I really hate to say this, to just blow it off. There are lots of great ideas out there. The really, really good ones, if you ignore them, will still be with you later. If it's something that you're not going to remember, if you don't write it down right now, if you don't deal with it right this minute, it's probably not all that good an idea to begin with. And it's taken me a number of years to learn this. It's, it's not an easy thing to do because you are so convinced at the moment that you think of this new thing that it's going to be the idea that you drop what you're doing. Writing is not about ideas. And that's another common misconception. Writing is about having an idea and then sitting your butt in the seat for 90 or 100,000 words and developing that idea and staying on track with it. Um, try meditating. Once you learn to quiet the monkey mind a little bit, uh, it, it's easier. It, you have fewer, it's not that you have fewer ideas, it's that you are more able to acknowledge them, dismiss them, and keep going with what you're doing. I hope that's helped. Thank you for listening. I have had fun, and I hope you have too. And while you're writing, remember this. Believe, persist, and never give up on your dreams. You can do this, and it's worth it. Welcome to Holly Lyle on Writing. I'm Holly Lyle, and today I'm so excited I just about can't see straight. I've got an opportunity that just opened up for me to write four books that I have been wanting to pay, I have been wanting to write since 2002 when I first came up with the idea for them. It's not a done deal; it's a pitch, but it was something that I was not expecting really to ever be able to do. The moral of this little story is that I have kept these suckers on my hard drive for since 2002, just, just on the off chance that at some point I would get a chance to pitch them to somebody who would want them. And didn't think it would happen. Did happen. So hang on to the stuff that you love that just doesn't fit. You never know when cool opportunities might happen. The downside of this, I guess I should mention, is that I was planning on doing a relatively long show today, but this project that I'm pitching has to be revised and done today. So it's going to be a little shorter than I had intended. We will kick off our series on trilogies. But first, I was sitting in on a writing panel over the weekend, and a member of the audience asked me how I dealt with endless revisions. My answer was pretty simple. I don't. I'm a full-time working writer, and working writers don't have time to dither around with endless revisions. Writing is our job, and just like 
those who write nonfiction for a living. Fiction writers have to meet deadlines. I write my first draft and I allow myself to make as many mistakes as, as I do in that first draft. My second draft, however, is my final draft before submitting to the editor. Um, I go through a huge and complicated process uh, that makes sure that I nail the revision that I'm willing to send off to the editor in one go. Uh, I have it linked on my website, One Pass Revision. But I just wanted to pass on to all of you, if you're thinking about doing this professionally, lose the idea right now of rewriting and rewriting and rewriting until the book is perfect, because the book will never be perfect, and endless revision is the mark of the amateur. I got a number of great questions, but uh, what I'll do is a relatively short show today. I'll do a pickup show, and then we'll get back to regularly scheduled shows on the 1st and the 15th of the month. Let's start in on the one question I'm going to begin to answer today, the question that spawned a series. Amanda asks, Holly, how do you plot a trilogy? This is nothing like an easy question, because there are a lot more than one kind of trilogy. First, there is the I wrote a really long book and my editor made me split it up into three books kind of trilogy. This is an increasingly common, but not necessarily welcome sort of trilogy. It's what happened to J.R.R. Tolkien with Lord of the Rings. It almost happened with Talon, which was 250,000 words long, in a market that right now um, seems to be geared towards shorter books. There are uh, trilogies that are linked related series. I've done some of those. The World Gate series, um, Talon again, <laughs> with, with the Corey novels. And there's the, I know this was going to be seven books, but sales weren't what we wanted, so we'd like you to end it on the third book kind of trilogy. There are some other ones too. There are some intentional trilogies. My point here, I guess, is that trilogies might happen to you in spite of your best intentions. But if you're actually wanting to do a trilogy, then decide whether you're wanting to do it as an open series of interlinked books with the possibility of expanding beyond the third book or whether what you want to do actually is write one very long story split up over three books. My example of the one really big book trilogy was my secret text trilogy, which was Diplomacy of Wolves, Vengeance of Dragons, and Courage of Falcons. The secret text was always intended to be three books. Uh, it was not intended to have two cliffhanger endings. My, my editor insisted on that, and that's the only thing that I would have changed about the trilogy if I could have. But from the very beginning, I planned it as, as sort of a symphony, uh, an introductory movement, the central movement, and then the concluding movement, each of which um, accomplished a couple of specific goals that I'd set out. But overall, I plotted it the same way that I would plot a, a, a regular novel, except longer and with more characters. All the characters in it are the same, from book to book, well, <laughs> those that survive anyway, it's one single story with one linear progression of events from from time period, from time from from the beginning of the time period to the end, without any long lapses. If that's the kind of trilogy you're wanting to do, then basically you plot it exactly as you would a regular book, 
The other kind of trilogy is the sort that made me decide that we needed a series on trilogies because it covers interlocking characters, um, complicated time periods, breaks in time, um, revolving casts of characters or completely new cast of characters and a host of other issues. With the Core novels, that is Talon, Hawksbar, and maybe Falca, although I'm not sure that that's what we're going to call the third one, I'm doing something different. Each book stands on its own, but they have an interlinked number of threads that run through them. One is a a world politics kind of thread for the world of Kore. One is the use of magic. Um, one is the Tonk culture. And one is this this kind of cool tie-in element between the, ma the main characters of the three books. And that's what I'm going to give you a little piece of today just to kind of show you how to develop one of these tie-in elements. This segment is from Talon and I will explain what it is that I've done with it and how I've tied it in and, and why it relates to the trilogy. Let me go ahead and read it to you so that you get an idea of what I've done. I wandered through long, lovely fields of flowers, the blue skies above me filled with soft white clouds, a stream heard but not yet seen burbling nearby, perhaps behind that little copse of trees. A herd of wild horses galloped past, Children shouted and laughed and played nearby, somewhere out of sight. Ah, I was back then, to the place of my dreams and nightmares. The man in the cage was gone, but the woman in white was there. She had not been there at first, but then I'd been looking around. I glanced from the hill where she'd stood or sat before, and when I looked back, she was there. She started walking toward me, something she had never done before. She wore tonk garb in the old fashion, but all in white, white beads, white embroidery, white paint upon her brow, white feathers in her warrior's braid. She is one of Ethabits, I thought, like me. But who are her people? What is her clan? I did not know her tattoos or her paint. She smiled at me, and I returned the smile. We were, after all, sisters of the sword. She reached me and, without a word, dropped her pack, also white, at my feet. From it she pulled out a meal blanket and spread it before me, and then she knelt, and out of her pack drew such a feast as I had never seen. Roast birds of all sorts, great slabs of beef and caribou and moose and whale carved and steaming, gravies and sauces, fishes griddle-fried or baked, heaping plates of potatoes like my mother made, a bounty of vegetables from every corner of hire, fruits of all seasons, desserts both familiar and fanciful, ales, wines, and juices. The white blanket grew to accommodate the things she pulled out, and I dropped to my haunches and watched her. In all my life I had never seen such a variety of foods in one place. And when the blanket groaned with good food and good drink, and when I was sure she must certainly stop, she began to pull other things out of her bag. My jewelry, grand houses on good high ground, horse houses and spider houses and tacks across higher, and across the seas in Tandinopolis. Herds of horses, gems and metals, people who bowed to me and served me and brought me all that I commanded. I was a bail? No, more powerful even than that. I stood astride a world and held the world in my care. With that much power, I thought, I could do so much good. When at last she finished, when what seemed to me to be nearly everything in the world lay before me on that white cloth, 
she pulled one final thing from her bag and held it in her hand. It was my soldier's flask, marked with the shielder emblem, filled always with water. You stand at the place where your one path becomes two, she told me. On the one path, you will have all of this. Her free hand made a sweeping gesture that encompassed everything that lay on the white blanket before me. On the other path, you will have this, and she held up my flask. I looked at the banquet, at the riches, at my work, at the dreams of Tonks made real, vast spaces and good horses and houses on hills. I started looking closer, at first casually, and then with increasing urgency, and when at last I was sure I had seen everything the woman's banquet offered, I said, I cannot find water here. She smiled at me. No, the water is here. And she held up the flask. I reached out and touched it. The flask felt cool and slightly damp to my fingertips, and I knew the water in it would be fresh and clear and cold. I looked at the rich feast, at all the wonderful things to eat and drink, at all the wonderful things to have. I reached out a hand, thinking, if I did not have water, I would still have ale and wine and all the fresh fruits in season. I would not want except for water itself. What is water? In a physical sense, it is life in its simplest form. Without it, we die. But the woman in white did not offer me merely physical water, any more than she offered me houses and horses on a blanket. So what is water when it is more than water? It is purity, simplicity. It is truth unvarnished and undecorated. It is a promise. It is quiet and silence. And she offered it to me in my shielder's flask, Honor, promises made, promises kept. The truth. She saw me looking at my flask and then at my jewelry and the horses and the wide green hills. Neither path holds promises beyond what you see. Know that both may hold grief and hardship, and both hold death at the end, as do all paths. We are mortal, after all. I nodded, reached back and touched my warrior braid. Like all humans, man and woman, I am many things, but I am at last Ethibit's creature. More than everything else that defines me, my choice to follow her dictates and precepts defines me. Ethibit's path is the path of service, of hardship, of honor and silence, of promises made and promises kept. Ethibit's path is water to me. It is my life. I reached out, and from the woman in white, I took my flask. She nodded. If you took the flask, I was to give you the other thing. She smiled at me. By Ethibit's behest, I give you a sword. A good, strong sword that will serve you on the path you take. Wield it wisely and well, knowing that you do so in Ethibit's name and with her blessing. And from the white bag, she produced a plain sword in a plain sheath. It bore no ornamentation, nor was it made in the Tonk style. It was flat and dull and lacking in grace, the hilt wire wrapped, the pommel pyramidal, the cross pieces heavy and serviceable. I pulled it from its sheath, dismayed to find rust on the blade and dried blood in the runnels, and the edges dull and nicked. It had seen service, this blade, and poor care. Dismayed, I looked at the woman in white. I saw amusement in her eyes. It needs a bit of care, she admitted, but nowhere in all the world 
Is there another blade that will serve you as well? She swept a hand across the blanket, and the blanket vanished. She rose, and the blanket leapt into her pack, and she slung her pack across her shoulders with the ease of a conventional on a march. She offered me her hand, and I took it, and she pulled me to my feet and then leaned forward and kissed my forehead. Go with grace, sister, she said. You are Ethabit's daughter, with whom she is well pleased. And then she was gone. In that excerpt, the woman in white, who had been a shadowy figure in the background of the book throughout the first half, speaks and offers the main character a deal. She, the, the woman in white, is the critical glue. I needed, I needed a glue. I needed something that would bind three completely separate parts of the world, three completely different protagonists, three almost different sets of characters, because there are some, some that show up from one book to the next, but in completely different roles. The role that the woman in white serves is to act as a messenger between Ethabet, who is the Tonk saint of war, to each of her three chosen avatars, uh, who would be Hawksbar, Talon, and um, Falca. She's a unifying element because each of the three books are set about 15 years apart, and they are set on completely different portions of the world, two of them on different continents, one primarily in a, a series of islands. Structurally, she binds the three um, somewhat different themes of the three books together under the single umbrella of having um, Ethabit's blessing for each of the three avatars and uh, posing them with a problem that they must then solve. If the, ser if the trilogy that you want to write is a trilogy that covers a history of a time or a history of a world or a history of a people rather than the history of one single person, then you're going to want over each of the three books to create some element that allows you to tie them together, to give you a voice between the three books that that demonstrates um, how they're interlinked, that that gives them ties back and forth to each other, that gives them a resonance that you can't get from doing just one story. Um, it will open your world up for you. It will make it bigger by by writing about different characters in different places. But you always need to have home to come home to. And if you're if you're covering large periods of time, if you're covering broad expanses of space, uh, if you have different different characters, then one single linking character or one single linking element can be the home that you come home to. Um, give it some thought with the stories that you're trying to develop and see how you can work that in. And that's really pretty much it for today. I've gone on far longer than I had intended to, and I've got to get that project out to my editor. So uh, we're going to wrap up for now, and I thank you so much for listening. Keep believing, never give up on your dreams. You can do this, and it's worth it.